Good to see you. It's good to be here. Christmas is almost upon us. Now, I've been thinking a lot just about past years and past Christmases and et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting how often we're waiting for something, like a gift. We really want that toy or we really want that gift card or we really want that technology or whatever it is. And then we finally get it and it's exciting for a little while and then and it really wasn't as great as we thought it would be. Come on. I think everyone's been there. Or you asked for something, you really, really wanted it, and then it was kind of a bust. Or maybe you play with it for a few days, and then you kind of tire of it. I mean, that's the way a lot of things are in this life, right? We wait for them, we wait for them, we wait for them, and then it's kind of a letdown. But some, some things aren't a letdown. And so I was trying to think of something that I waited for. I waited for, I waited for, I waited for, and it was worth it. And I know it's sappy, but the best illustration I can come up with is my wife. Because we did long distance for about a year and a half because we met through camp ministry. How, like, you know, stereotypical is that? You know, a pastor meets his wife at camp, Bible camp. Uh, but we met through camp ministry, as many of you know. And so then I had to go away to school. And there was an entire school year where we were dating long distance. And then a semester long distance that we were engaged and for any of you who've been in a long distance uh, scenario like that, it's rough because you desperately want to be with that person and you can't. And it was tough being in Virginia. I didn't want to be in Virginia at that point. I was like, I want to be in Maine, I'm tired of the bugs and, you know, Southerners and, you know, um, I had a lot of good friends there. Okay. I don't hate Southerners, but just you guys, anyone, some of you know what I mean. Some of you know what I mean. I wanted to be home and... I was able to endure that because I could trust her promises. Like I knew that Dorothy wasn't going to dump me just because I was a thousand miles away. Because I had seen her character time and time and time and time again. And so I was able to trust the promise that when I finally graduated, when I endured school and graduated, we could be together. Now, there's a lot of suffering around us in this community. There's just a lot of various breeds, kinds, and flavors. And so I think it's in a time like this, in view of Christmas, we need to be reminded of God's trustworthiness, that we can take his promises to the bank, and that we can wait for their fulfillment. So kind of the main idea today is that Christmas reminds us that waiting for God's promises is worth it. Waiting for God's promises is worth it. So let's pray. Oh, Lord. Your promises are good. Your promises are true. So please bless this time as we open your word full of your promises. Holy Spirit, please use these weak human words to convey your truth. Open our hearts to what you want to teach us. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, I'm going to ask you all to turn to the book of Habakkuk. Didn't see that one coming. This is not usually a place where we find ourselves around Christmas time or actually ever. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon out of Habakkuk. I've rarely read Habakkuk, but I think Habakkuk is actually an awesome place for us to start. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk lived between 600 and 700 BC in the kingdom of Judah. 
So this is after God's people, Israel, entered the promised land. They had their own kingdom. The kingdom split, and the larger portion of that kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was taken away by the Assyrians. And now, all that's left is Judah. And Habakkuk is part of this crew of prophets that God rose up in this time period to tell Judah, guess what? Your evil is going to be punished as well. Like, that's a great job description, right? Tell these people who aren't going to listen, judgment is coming. But Habakkuk is really cool because unlike the other prophets who receive a word from God and then deliver it to the people, Habakkuk brings a complaint to God, which is something that we often want to do. He takes his complaint straight to God. And so in verses 2, 3, and 4, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk was looking around his own nation, a group of people that were supposed to be God's chosen people, and yet there was rampant abuse, oppression, violence, and it seemed like, even though God says he's a just God, that he is the judge, he was not judging these people, and that they were just continuing in rampant sin and rebellion and hurting each other. And he even says, it seems like the law isn't working. And he's crying out, Lord, why is there no justice? And so God responds in the verses to follow. And he says, don't worry, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come and discipline my people by invading them. And Habakkuk's response is, God, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you raise up the Babylonians and bless the Babylonians by letting them raid us when the Babylonians are just as wicked as us? And so that brings us to chapter 2, verse 1. The prophet says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He puts himself in this position. He says, my complaint really hasn't been adequately answered yet, but I'm going to put myself in a place of waiting for God to respond. And so then continuing on, God does respond. And in verses 3 and 4, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. If you spent a lot of time in church, that phrase should just pop out of the page. The righteous shall live by faith. It's used three times in the New Testament. Three times, the righteous shall live by faith. So God responds to Habakkuk and he says, look, my vision of destruction and judgment is coming. If it doesn't seem like it's coming, wait, because it will. And then he says that there are two responses. And this is kind of trickling into what follows this is that the wicked can ignore this and they can be puffed up in heart and they can continue living the way they are and those people will not realize that their desire and their pursuit of what they want will bring their ruin. But the righteous have another option and that is to trust and wait. The righteous shall live by faith. That in the midst of conflict, in the midst of drama, in the midst of seeing worse things on the horizon, the response of God's people can be to trust him 
and wait. The righteous shall live by his faith. It continues on, and there's this really cool, like, artistic section where um, the prophecy is written with the voices of the nations that Babylon has already offed. And they're laughing at Babylon as Babylon is being destroyed. And then in chapter 3, in verse 2, Habakkuk has a major attitude change. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And scholars like to, you know, jump around with different ideas about how Habakkuk was reminded of God's past works, whether he was just listening to the songs that we find in Psalms because there's some connections in here, or whether there was a vision, or whatever it was. Regardless, Habakkuk remembers what God has already done in the past. He remembers the works of God, and that completely changes his perspective because he knows God's promises are trustworthy. He knows he can wait on God. Even if he cannot see good things on the horizon, he can trust that God will be just. And so he actually changes his attitude and prays that the judgment would, would come, but then in that prayer says, God, also be merciful to your people. In wrath, remember mercy. And then moving on to verse 16, and in between there's this really cool section where there's all this um, allusions to mythology and creation and the exodus and blah, 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 blah. Cool stuff that I could nerd out for a while. Not going to do that. Second half of 16 says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the Lord of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Even in a position where the prophet is trembling because he sees the bad things that are on the horizon, he sees that his nation is going to be judged, is going to be invaded. He remembers God's past deeds. He is strengthened by those. And even though he sees a time where there isn't going to be food and it's actually going to get worse, he's able to find joy because he knows God is going to pull his people through in the end. The righteous shall live by faith. So now we're going to jump over to Luke 2. Right, that sounds a little bit more familiar for a Christmas message. We're going to be in Luke 2, verses 22 through 38. So if Habakkuk was written around 600 to 700 BC, the events in Luke chapter 2 would have taken place roughly 600 to 700 years later. And in between this time, Israel indeed was defeated by Babylon, carried into exile for 70 years, came back to the land, and there's this 400-year stretch where God really wasn't speaking to his people. And there are all these cool wars with the Greeks, and for a while uh, the Jews had their own nation, and then eventually the Romans kind of came in and put an end to all of that. And so when Jesus is born, when we find the Christmas story, the Romans are ruling over Israel. They're ruling over Palestine. They're ruling over the Jews. And in Luke 2, verses 22 through 38, I'm just going to read it, 
and then we're going to talk about it a bit. This is after Jesus has been born. Right before this, we have the usual story that you would find. Maybe you hit a button on your nativity set or some you know, little Christmas toy, and it plays that story, or you have a little board book that plays that story. But after that, starting in verse 22, it says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years, from which she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Jesus has recently been born, and there were a number of rituals that we've, we actually saw when we worked through the law over the past few months, that when a firstborn baby was born, that child, that, that firstborn male, uh, belonged to God. And so there was this ceremony they went through to buy that child back. And all of this is pointing forward to what God would do through Jesus to save his people, offering his firstborn as a sacrifice. And so they actually have to go through this with Jesus and bring Jesus to the temple, and he would have been circumcised, and they had to offer a sacrifice. And there's this character in the temple named Simeon. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, in, in Luke 2, we find that God's people were in this setting where the Romans were ruling over them. And all across the board, people would have been waiting for God to send his Messiah, send his chosen one. They would lead God's people, be their king, defeat the Romans, and then they could have their own nation again. And so in this time of conflict and discontentment, Simeon takes a different approach than most. Instead of getting involved in all of these um, different factions and trying to get rid of the Romans or manipulate the Romans, Simeon does something radical in that he actually just waits for God. And he does this through worship. He spends time in the temple. And in the context of that relationship with God, the Holy Spirit reveals to him, guess what? You aren't going to die until you see the Christ. 
until you see the one who's going to save my people. And so Simeon is drawn by the Holy Spirit into the temple. And it's revealed to him that this is the one, and he just lets loose rejoicing. Praise you, God, I can die in peace. According to your word, God's promise was true. He would not die until he had seen salvation, until he had seen the one who would save God's people. And there's even a level of prophetic in here that Simeon knows that this Messiah is not just for God's people, but for the Gentiles. And he knows that there's a cross ahead, that, that's, that the sword is going to pierce Mary's heart as she sees her son on the cross. But Simeon was waiting. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he lets loose rejoicing, but he only got a glimpse. He got to hold the child in his arms, but he didn't get to see the cross. He's an old dude. He didn't get to see the resurrection. This is the glimpse that he gets, and yet this is enough for him. And we see the same thing with Anna. Here's a a very devout woman who, she was married for seven years. Her husband died, and rather than get remarried, she's now in her 80s, and she has lived alone this whole time, and she's devoted herself to being in the temple. She's the regular at the temple, praying, worshiping, fasting. And she too is waiting for God to save his people. And she too, when she is in the temple at the right time, hears this news, she's spreading it among those that are waiting for God to save his people. Now that child that was, you know, born in a manger, and we share that story a lot around Christmas time, it was then brought into the temple. He would grow in wisdom and knowledge And then when he was about 30, he had an earthly ministry of preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing and casting out demons and confronting the religious authorities. And even though he had the power to deliver himself, he had the power to raise an army, and people wanted him to raise an army, he allowed himself to be betrayed, handed over to the Romans, and crucified on a cross. And at a point in the story where if that was any other leader, the followers would have had two responses, either disband which they kind of already did when Jesus was on the cross. Most of them had already fled. Or create some weird story about how, well, yes, he's dead, but, you know, his spirit is still with us, and and yada, yada, yada. And yet, in this point in the story, this group of cowards carry the good news to the rest of the world because something amazing happened. That man didn't stay dead. He rose three days later from the grave. He turned cowards into bold witnesses. And so for us, we're on the other side of Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. We no longer are back here with the people in the Old Testament just trusting that God's going to work it out and not really knowing what that looks like, but rather we are over here and we have seen the promises and we have seen the fulfillment of those promises and now it's our place to believe or reject Jesus, to receive salvation, forgiveness for our sins, be brought into a right relationship with our creator or to reject him. And so there's, in a sense, we're in a very different place than Habakkuk. We're even in a very different place than Simeon and Anna because for us, we see the promises fulfilled. But this life is still broken. This life is still broken. I mean, just the amount of sickness that's been around us lately, um, 
is just heartbreaking, right? I, you know, we've lost a number of people this year here in this body or in the greater community. Uh, I feel like every week I'm just waiting for another cancer diagnosis from someone I love. You know, we live in a world of suffering. We live in a world that's broken, a world that doesn't operate the way it should. We live in a world with school shootings and tornadoes. And we're just talking about the past month of news. Right? I keep hearing people throw around the phrase, you know, we're living in crazy times. The world has just lost its mind. And I guess the one encouraging thing in that, in that is that I don't think there's been a time in human history after the fall where people haven't said we're living in crazy times, people have lost their minds. We live in a broken, fallen world. And so we, standing here today in Hollis Center, Maine, are still waiting for the fulfillment of a greater promise. See, I've been around here so long, that doesn't even bother me anymore. Snow falling off this roof. We're still waiting for a greater promise that this whole world is going to be made right again. That our creator is going to remake all of this and all of it will be right in the end. And so there is a sense that we are very much like Habakkuk. We are very much like Simeon and Anna and all these characters in the Old Testament and that we are, we are in present trouble, in present suffering, and yet, we look back on God's promises and trust that he's going to make it right in the end. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. For those of us that trust in Christ, we know that one day when he comes back, we get new bodies. Whether we're still running around here or we've died, everyone who trusts in Christ is going to be raised to a newness. And Christ's resurrection after the cross is proof that it's going to happen. He's the first fruits. First fruits means there's fruit to come after. But Christ is our first fruits. He rose from the dead, so those who trust in him also will get to raise from the dead and live forever with him. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 13, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I love the way Peter says it. He says, look, if you think God's promises are slow, he's not slow, he's patient. God is waiting for the fullness of his people to come to faith in him. And then the end will come, and it's going to come like a thief. No one can predict when a thief breaks into your house. No one can. When Jesus comes back, it's going to surprise the people who are living on this earth. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up. Everything that's been done in this life will be exposed before the judge of the universe. 
In verse 11, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, God isn't coming back to just lay waste to everything and walk away, but rather he is coming back to make all things right. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be no more sorrow, no more suffering, the way we experience it on this earth. And lastly, in Revelation 21, verse 1, the prophet John, in the end of Scripture, he gets a glimpse of it. He's the lucky one who gets a glimpse of it. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So for us standing here today, we are still waiting for promises to come. And we don't know when they're going to be fulfilled. And very often when we look on the horizon of our lives, we see worse things, not better things. At the very least, all of us in this room are getting older. Tomorrow, we will be older than we were today. And we know that all of us, unless Jesus comes back, are going to face death. And probably sickness, and probably the uh, death and sickness of people around us, and there's crime, and there's war. But in that conflict, what brings us joy is remembering the past promises that have been fulfilled, the faithfulness of God in the past, because that allows us to endure the present drama and conflict and pain, knowing that the future promises will come in their due time. Christmas reminds us that waiting for God's promises is worth it. When we look at a little nativity set, and we see that little baby in a manger... We remember that there were, there were followers of the living God for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that only got glimpses of promises. They knew God was going to work it out in the end. And all of that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and we get to stand on the other side of that. The promised one came, and he's coming again, and we can trust that he is, in fact, coming again. My favorite hymn is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which some of you might be thinking right now, David, that's not a hymn, it's a Christmas song. Well, if you think about the lyrics, it's really not that Christmassy. We sing it around Christmas time, it's really not distinctively Christmassy. And I listen to it all year long, it brings tears to my eyes all year long, because when we really get into this song, we realize it's not just written from the perspective of people awaiting their Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ, but it's actually written to be the cry of our hearts today as followers of Christ. Let me show you in the first section. The first line, O come, O come, Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel, the name for Jesus, means God with us. And it's just this cry of Jesus come. And sure enough, for a long time, God's people were calling for the Messiah to come, and as he came in the person of Jesus Christ, but for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ today, we're waiting for him to come back and make all things right, to deliver his people, to make the world anew. The next line says, and ransom captive Israel. 
And that word ransom means to buy back. And certainly enough, Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, he bought back his people out of slavery to sin. He's forgiven us. He's freed us from it. But yet we also still live in a world full of the consequences of sin. We live under the tyranny of death, the tyranny of sickness. Churches are not perfect places. Like we are still waiting to be delivered from quite a bit. We know spiritually we've been delivered. We experience salvation in the present tense, but we're also waiting for all things to be made right. And according to Romans, we've been grafted into the tree of Israel. So we too today can cry out, Lord, ransom captive Israel. Free us, rescue us. That mourns in lonely exile here, 1 Peter 2.11 calls us sojourners in exiles. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, just after listing a variety of figures we see in the Old Testament that sought after God, we get these words, starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The author of Hebrews looks back on all of these Old Testament figures and he recognizes that all of them were immigrants in this world, sojourners, wandering around, that this world wasn't their home. He says, look, if they were looking for a home in this world, they could have gone back to where they were born. There was a physical place for them to return to, but they were looking for something better. They were looking for a better homeland. And God is their God, and he has prepared for them a city. What they were looking for and what we are waiting for is the new Jerusalem. A city where God is going to gather all of his people in a new world that's perfect. That is what we are waiting for. So our attitude here in this life, and I love this life, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of awesome things about this life. But in the end, we're just passing through here. We're just passing through. We are in exile I, I used to, when I was in Virginia, I used to feel that that was my exile. That I really wanted to be back in Maine. I really wanted to be back in Maine. That was my exile. This life is our exile. If we think this is good, the next life is way better. And if we think this world is not that good, which very often it isn't, we know that the next life is perfect. So we are in exile, and we can mourn in that exile knowing that It'll all be made right, last line, when the Son of God appears. Israel was waiting for the Messiah to come, the Son of God, and he came. But today, standing in the reality of that first coming, we are waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him to come back and make all things right. Christmas reminds us that waiting for God's promises is worth it. Waiting for God's promises is worth it. And so the application for us is this. Are you grieving? Are you suffering? Are you anxious? Are you in conflict? 
we need to remember that for those of us that trust Christ, we are secured by unbreakable promises. And those promises are not contingent on our current circumstance. We can be like Habakkuk and only see bad things coming on the horizon. That will happen often in this life because we live in a broken world. The the message of Christianity is not, hey, become a Christian and everything's going to be magically wonderful. Your bank account's going to be overflowing. You're never going to have to go to the hospital. That is a lie. We have all seen some of the most godly people that have ever been in this building suffer with horrible sicknesses, struggle financially for years. This life is difficult. But in that, we know that in the end, God is going to make all things right. And so we look back through history. We scroll through the passages of Scripture. We can even look at what God's done in our own lives and say, he is trustworthy. And so when he says it will all be made right again in the end, we can take that to the bank, even though everything around me says that this can never be fixed. That's our encouragement. So when we remember God's promises and his past deeds, we can find the ability to endure the present troubles. It's not easy. I'm not here to say I do it perfectly. But when we look back, we remember what God has done, his past deeds, we can find the ability to endure present troubles. And in that space, we can even be trembling at what's around us and yet find joy in the Lord because we know he's going to, in the end, make it all right. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We find ourselves in a season of mixed emotions. Of uh, pleasure and joy mixed with sorrow. Many people are anxious and scared. Uh, Many are annoyed and frustrated. And Lord, we recognize that there is no... There's no solution to that here and now that will fully fix all of that. This life is difficult, but through the power of your blood, you've won our souls. And so if we put our trust in you, we are secured for a future that is without suffering, without grief, without sin, without pain. And so I pray that for those that are gathered here, Those that don't know you would put their trust in you and find that security. And for those of us that do already trust you, that we'd be reminded of it. It's so easy to try to put our trust in the temporary and lose sight of what you're doing. So Lord, help us to remember, help us to rejoice. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.